Looking forward to this one, aren't you? <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And here at this church, we believe that. We believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe that everything in it, everything in it is useful. Everything in it is there to teach us. And because we believe that, when we get to a passage like what Jack just read, a long, long list of names, and then a final comment about some potential giants, that word Nephilim means great ones, In the book of Numbers, it refers to some people who are very, 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 very large. Uh, In a book that, a passage like this, as much as we might want to just skip over it, thinking there's nothing there that's going to be that helpful, we're not going to do that. We're going to read it. We're going to expect God to teach us something this morning. And so, as we do that, as we expect God to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness... I think it's pretty clear that we're going to need his help. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, sometimes we get to scripture and we don't know what to do with it. Lord, we pray that you might teach us this morning, even with words that are old, that are somewhat boring, that seem disconnected from our lives. Lord, we pray that you might use them to grow us in godliness to help us to love you more, to change us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 5 is a transition in the book of Genesis. The opening chapters of the book have all been about God creating the heavens and the earth and about that first generation of humans. And in that section, God has been teaching us what it means to be a human. He's taught us that we are created to be like him. We're created in his image. He's taught us that we are created male and female, complementing each other so that we might get on with the work that he's given us. We learn all these things about who we are and what our lives are about. But as that section draws to a close and it transitions to the next generation, Noah and his family, before that happens... God's got four more fundamental facts to teach us. Four more things that are important for us to know about ourselves and about how we relate to him. You can see them there on your outlines. We're going to address two of them quickly and spend a bit more time on the second two. So the first one is that God is our father. Because this account is introduced as the account of Adam's family line in verse 1, but the very next sentence actually makes it clear that this is God's family line. Did you notice how what Adam does in verse 3 is a copy of what God does in verse 1? In verse 1, God created mankind in his likeness, in his image. In verse 3, It's now Adam's turn. Adam has a son in his own likeness. In verse 1, God names 
his creation. He calls them mankind. In verse 3, what does Adam do? Well, he names his son. The pattern that we see repeated again and again and again in that genealogy is a pattern that God established. He is the father. All of them trace their line back not just to Adam, but to God, their creator. And that pattern continues today. As we have children, as we look at baby Amelia at the back there, we can argue back and forth about whether she looks more like Jason or more like Lauren. And let's pray that she looks more like Lauren. (laughs) But the thing that we can be certain of is that she looks like God. She resembles God. She's created in his image to rule as he rules. He is her father. And he is your father. Every single human has God as their father. The question for us is, will we acknowledge him as that? He is waiting there with arms open, ready to welcome us back into his family. Will you be his child? He is your father. Will you treat him like that? Will you trust him? Will you obey him? That's the first thing we learn from a genealogy like this. The second thing we learn is that even though God is the father of all people, he chooses to work through particular people. And we notice that when we consider who it is that is created, that is born in Adam's likeness. Who's Adam's son? Not not Cain, the firstborn son. Not Abel, the second son, who was murdered. Seth. Seth is the one who's considered in the likeness of his father. Seth is the one whose family line we go on to consider. Now, as a third child myself, I'd like to tell you that the reason is that third children are the best children. But we know that's not true. Really, what this line shows us is that God works through people that he chooses Now, Cain still had a family. God still blessed Cain. But God chose to work through Seth's line. There was a search for a descendant of Eve who would crush evil, who would crush the serpent, who would overcome the curse. And Genesis goes on to follow that search through Seth's family line. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that, but this idea will come up again and again in Genesis. God chooses certain people to work through. So they're the first two things. God is our father. And even though he's the father of all people, he chooses to work specially through some people. But it's the third point that I want us to spend some more time on this morning. Because as you read Adam's family history, there is one feature that really stands out. One thing that is strikingly familiar to all of us. It's not their ages. That's not familiar. There's one thing that brings a final full stop to every story that we read in Genesis 5. Because at the end of each one of those short paragraphs are four little words which put everything else in perspective. And then he died. Eight times in that list we hear it. And then he died. 
repeated again and again to make sure you get it. And then he died. Because everyone on that list rebelled against God, the life giver, they died. Because everyone on that list now lives under the curse, they died. Because Adam and Eve ignored God's warning to not eat the fruit that would bring certain death, every one of their descendants dies. Because God cuts off their descendants from the rebellious creature, sorry, because he cuts off these rebellious creatures from the tree of life in the garden, every single human being has that same miserable ending. And then he died. And then she died. Now, this isn't something that many of us like talking about. Death is a subject we tend to avoid where we can. We hide death away in hospitals, don't we? We we push it to the side in aged care facilities. We distance ourselves from the inescapable reality of death. Like a kid who covers their eyes and says, if I can't see it, then it's not really there. That's what we do with death. We don't like thinking about it. And on the rare occasion that we do talk about it, well, we tend to dress it up, don't we? We say, he's in a better place. Or we say, she grew her wings. But friends, you can hide from it. You can ignore it. You can put a positive spin on it. Or you can pretend it's not there. But none of that changes the fact that we are all going to die. You are going to die. And friends, it doesn't matter if you live 969 years like Methuselah or if you reach the limit of 120 that God imposes at the start of chapter 6 or if you only have a few moments on this earth. It doesn't matter if you've been good or if you've been bad. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It doesn't matter if your life has been enjoyable or if your life has been one difficult struggle after another. Because every one of our stories is going to end with the same four words. And then they die. Now, just as an aside, there's no such thing as a natural death. Death is not natural. You weren't made for death. You were made for life. And the Bible's picture of humanity is people that were made to live forever with God. You were made in a world that was perfectly designed to sustain life, to support it. And so death is not part of God's good creation. It didn't belong there. And that's why in John chapter 11, when Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus has died... He doesn't go to his grieving sisters and say, get over it, of course he died. No, Jesus weeps because death is unnatural. It's a perversion of our humanity. And yet it's the ending we all face. Every single one of our lives will end with those same four words. And now, while you can't do much about your death, you can let it change your life. And so, friends, my hope for you this morning is that 
This reminder of death, this uncomfortable reminder, will be a wake-up call to stop wasting your life. You know in TV shows, the reality shows like MasterChef and The Block and Lego Masters, whatever one, they've always got a timer. And the contestants will spend 90% of their time sort of just fluffing around. Oh, maybe I'll make a candied clementine skin filled with blood orange and lime sorbet on a bed of meringue with orange dust, candied cherry and flambéed whiskey out of Lego. But it's only when you get the wake-up call. It's only when you get the 10-minute timer, 10 minutes remaining, that they scramble into action. Friends, this is your wake-up call. You probably won't live to be 120. In fact, with the possible exception of Amelia, every single one of you is in the last century of your life. And most of us, sorry, none of us, none of us can guarantee that we're even going to be here tomorrow. We all only have a limited time here on this earth. You only get one shot at this life. Please don't waste it. Because most people do waste their lives. Most people live with no aim, no goal, no impulse, except the one that takes them back to the fridge. Most people are living for nothing more than their own enjoyment, their own comfort, their own indulgence. It's an empty, wasted life. Life is more than a series of purchases broken up by periods of browsing. Life is more than that. You were made for more than that. And so please don't get caught up in living for the things that the people around you live for. Because friends, if the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning is your career or your weekend fishing or your next shopping adventure or your dream house or your quest to produce high-achieving children, or your comfortable retirement, if it's any of those things, you're not living, you're wasting your life. Friends, the true test of whether something is worth living for is whether it's worth dying for. And friends, there's really only one thing worth dying for the thing you were created for, the thing that will last. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this. In answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what you are here for. That is what life is about. That is a life well lived, glorifying your creator pleasing Him and enjoying Him forever. And the two go together. So friends, let me encourage you. Let God be the centre of the things that you do in your life. Let your decisions be motivated by what pleases Him. Let Him be your goal. Let His plans for His world become your plans for your world. If you grabbed a handout, I put a poem by C.T. Studd in there. 
My hope for you is that that repeated refrain will stick in your head. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but that that repeated refrain, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you living for what will last? Because your life is limited. Time will run out. But there is a way to live that brings lasting change. Not just to you, but also to those around you. So are you living for things that will last? This week I want to challenge you to actually take note of how you spend a day. Write it down in a notebook. From when you wake up to when you go to bed. Right, right now, how do you actually spend your time? And what does it show about what's important to you? Are you living to glorify God and to enjoy Him? Or are you seeking your own glory and trying to find enjoyment in something else? So much of what we do is wasting our lives. I'm guilty of this. I pulled out my phone yesterday and had a look at my screen time report. If you're familiar with this, it's, it's what tells you... It's, it's a bit on my phone that tells me how long I've been looking at my phone. I'm ashamed to tell you the number. It was almost a whole day in a week that I looked at my phone. That is wasting my life. Now, as a disclaimer, I do use it for helpful things. I do my personal devotions on it. I read books on my iPad. I do use it for work. But even if I have that number, that's a waste of time. Are you wasting the limited time that God has given you here on this earth? Are you just whittling away the hours? Or are you living with some purpose? with some aim, with some ambition for God. Please, friends, don't waste your life. Uh, If you're young, if you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, please don't make the mistake of thinking that you have lots of time, because you do, but that just means you have more time to waste. Use the rest of your life for Jesus. Make your life about following him. Take up your cross and find life in him. But friends, if you're at the other end of that spectrum, if you're one of the people in the room who has considerably less time left on this earth, please don't make the mistake of thinking that your life is already over. Because as long as God gives you breath, he wants you to glorify him and enjoy him. He wants you to joyfully serve him and you can still be doing that. Uh, My life was changed by a man who was at least 40 years older than me, possibly 50 years older than me. Use your time to invest in some younger people or even use your time to pray. Friends, please don't waste your life. Whether you've got a hundred years left, whether you've got a few years left, use them to glorify your creator and enjoy him. And friends, when we do that, we'll find that there is actually a way to escape death. And that's our fourth thing that we learn from Adam's family tree. 
Because as Jack read Genesis 5, you will have noticed some repetition, wouldn't you? It has a rhythm. It keeps going on and on. The rhythm repeats. So-and-so lived a hundred years and had a son. Then he lived another 600 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, so-and-so lived 700 years and then he died. And just like when you get a bad drummer, when the rhythm gets broken, you notice it, don't you? Well, Genesis 5 has three breaks in rhythm. Times where it stops. Times that are calling for your attention. The first one comes in verse 24 with Enoch, because Enoch's story finishes differently, doesn't it? Instead of, and then he died, verse 24 says Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Just like everyone else, Enoch's life ended, but it didn't end with death. Enoch was no more because God took him away. Now, what that looked like, I don't know. But because Enoch walked faithfully with God, that is, he trusted and obeyed God, he was spared God's death sentence. The second break to the rhythm comes in verse 29, where Lamech speaks about his son Noah. Nowhere else in that whole list does anyone speak. And then in verse 29, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And if you've been following the story, your ears prick up. When God cursed the serpent back in chapter 3, he said that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. That someone in Adam's family line would overcome the power of sin and death. And now Lamech is prophesying about his son Noah that this son will bring comfort in the pain and toil of the curse. You're supposed to wonder, could this be the one? Could this be the serpent crusher? Could this be the one, God's answer to the problem of sin? The third break in rhythm reinforces this suspicion, doesn't it? Because in verse 32, the genealogy just stops mid-sentence. And Noah was 500 years old. He became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it just stops. Until almost four whole chapters later, flick ahead in your Bible to chapter 9, verse 28, the the family tree actually continues. It pauses for four whole chapters and then in verse 28 of chapter 9 we read, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And then he died. Now, that's a big break in the rhythm. That's the drummer going out the back and having a smoke and not coming back until the next day. That's a massive disruption to the beat. And you're supposed to notice it. Because it's what's in between that matters. It's when the drummer stops drumming that you're supposed to take it, pay attention. And in between 
the end of chapter 5 and that end bit of chapter 9, we learn about Noah. We learn that like Enoch, Noah walked with God. We see that in chapter 6. We learn that like Enoch, God spared Noah from judgment. The flood that killed every other living thing on the face of the planet did not kill Noah. God spared Noah and his family death and judgment. And so you see there's those three breaks in the rhythm and all of them point towards a way beyond death. A way to escape God's judgment. And so friends, as we draw those four fundamental facts together, here's what we see. Our life here on this earth is limited. We are all going to die. We only get one shot at life. And so it's worth doing right. And living rightly in this world means living for our Heavenly Father. That's our first point. He is our Heavenly Father. And so we live for Him. We owe Him. We belong to Him. And we do that by believing in the one He sent. The one He chose to work through. The one who would overcome the curse once and for all. The one who would provide true comfort against the curse. The one who lived the perfect human life. The one who tasted death and judgment for you so that you could be spared. The one that came to offer you life to the full. Life as it was meant to be. Life where you glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So friends, are you living for the Lord Jesus? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me pray. Lord God, it's not often that we stop and think about our lives. It's not often that we pause to consider what we are doing, where we are going, what we are living for. But Lord, when we're confronted with death, when we're reminded that we will have an end, it brings into perspective our lives now. And so Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this wake-up call and we ask that you would use it to help us to live well in your world. We pray that we would not waste these brief years that you give us here on this earth. We pray that we would live for you, that we would live for your glory, that we would find enjoyment in you. Help us to know that true satisfaction is not found in the things of this world. It's not found in our own indulgence. It's found in knowing you and living for you and serving you. Lord, I pray that you would help us each to know this. I pray that you would help us to set aside the things that, that vie for our attention, the things that we are tempted to find satisfaction in. Lord, help us to live for Christ. Keep us from wasting our lives. Keep us from wasting our days. With whatever time you give us, may we live them for you. We pray this 
for the glory of our Lord Jesus. The one who overcame death. The one who provides a way beyond judgment. We pray it in his name. Amen.